Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to Football a la Turca. I know you had to wait a little longer this week, but you're waiting, your patience will be paid off duly, you will see. I am joined once again by my usual co-hosts, Burak Sezgin and Özer Dinger. Guys, thanks for joining me. And more importantly, we have a very special treat for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We are joined live from London. Gabriele Marcotti from ESPN and a frequently featured uh, guest on ESPN FC, of course. Those of you in America and in England will know him for sure. Those in England may remember him from Talk Sport as well, um, as well as appearances on the BBC and ITV. He is also an author of four books, um, the most recent of which is Hail Claudio, the man the Manager, The Miracle, which is a book on Claudio Ranieri. It was uh, written in 2016 and it's available on Amazon right now for on, on Kindle for just 3.99. So, <laughs> pounds, excuse me, uh, 3 points, pounds 99. You can hear that I'm a Euro user uh, on for your Kindle on Amazon. So, go and pick that up. You can also check out his other books, The Italian Job and Capello, Portrait of a Winner. Um... Well, first and foremost, Gabriele, thank you very much for taking the time for coming on to our show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And we're going to pick your brain a little bit about Turkish football. But before we do that, I would like to uh, introduce my, my two co-hosts here. Burak Sizgin, also from London, and also Özer Dinger from London. And Özer, I believe you have... A little surprise for Mr. Marcotti. Uh oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I wonder, Mr. Marcotti, if you if you recognise my voice. <laughs> uh, we meet again. It's been uh, it's been quite a few years since I bumped into you on a flight from London to Milan, and uh, we chatted briefly about all the good things in life: opera, wine, and Roberto Mancini. Uh, at that time, he just joined Galatasaray, so this was back in at the end of 2013. Uh, we talked about the Champions League, but you weren't too convinced that he was the man to take Gala out of the group, which had Juventus and Real Madrid in. But sure enough, he did. And then we had, brief, uh, we had a brief Twitter exchange about that. And uh, I remember being overjoyed at that, over that, at that result. And you were, the first, you were the first thing that came to my mind, that little uh, conversation that we'd had a couple of weeks before that. A lot of wow. things have changed since then. Yeah, they have. Yes. No, no, no. Now that you mention it, I remember it. And wasn't that also the group in in Conte's last season? Wasn't the game yes, that's in right. Turkey when like it was it was all like snowing and icy and they had to oh, like, play the right. next day? Exactly right. Yeah, that's the, yes. the epic two two day match. Exactly. <laughs> well, you're you you you. I was wrong to estimate, underestimate your memory. <laughs> well, some things I remember, others less so. <laughs> what do you think of his new hairstyle, by the way, Mancini's? You know what? Mancini's weird. I, it's no, I mean, in fact, he's an unusual person, but um, he's gone through so many different kind of iterations in, in, in his look. And I think he's trying to look sort of older and, and more more sort of stately, like more gravitas. Um, I don't know. I mean, right now, obviously, he's on a tremendous uh, uh, run with Italy. So, you know, long may it continue. I think people people he could wear a paper bag over his head for all I care as long as they keep uh, <laughs> playing like this well let's talk a little bit about Turkey and uh, the Turkish national team actually and Turkish football in general Mr. Markotti because um, it's of course 
what we're here for on the Turkish uh, football <laughs> podcast here on Football Ala Turka. So I would like to get your thoughts on uh, the current state of Turkish football and where do you think it's lacking? How do you think it can advance? Because for years we've been hearing, you know, Turkish football is kind of on the up and up, but it's something I've been hearing for two decades now, and it's kind of stagnated and always stayed a little bit around that same level. Maybe it's gone up a little bit here, a little bit there. It's kind of a roller coaster ride, and obviously Turkey are a big country. Um, the clubs have a lot of fans. The major clubs have a lot of fans, a huge fan base, so there should be potential there in theory. But what do you think is maybe holding them back right now? I mean, I think uh, a couple things. So, um, I mean, first of all, I, I would agree that uh, things probably are uh, on the up from from what I can see. Um, I think, you know, sort of historically, it wasn't a question of investment. It was a question of... Of, of, of organization and, you know, to some degree, and, and we had the same issue in Italy. I don't want to use the word legality, but sort of like a trust in a trust in the system, a trust that there's proper, proper o- oversight, um, a trust in the authorities to go and, and crack down on wrongdoing when there was wrongdoing, um, crack down on, on financial management. Um, and obviously, you know, obviously Fenerbahce and, um, and, and Galatasaray for, for different reasons, both had their issues. Um, I think the, you know, Turkey's bid for, um, uh, for the Euros in many ways was, was a positive. I think it helped motivate everything. You know, I, I'm not saying the two things are necessarily directly related, but, you know, you look at things like Besiktas's new, new stadium. Um, you know, you look at some of the investment that was made in infrastructure, I think all those things are, are positive. Um, the the talented footballers have have always been there. I think one of the one of the challenges, and I know we might be getting into this, is also the fact that at, at the bigger clubs, you know, Turkey's always done has always attracted a lot of foreigners, and sometimes, arguably, maybe not always the right kind of foreigners. A lot of times, it's older players. The fact that you guys might know more than me, but that sort of the the top income tax rate, I think I'm right in saying yeah. at least for foreigners is about fifteen percent. It's correct, yeah. That has a way of really distorting things and you know, you see a lot of sort of shortcuts taken. You see a lot I what feels to me like sometimes, you know, agents, people like that placing Placing players where they can continue to earn well, mm-hmm. um, you know, I get the idea, right? I, I I know I had the opportunity to to, to speak to players who who played in Turkey and how all of a sudden, you know, you're like, oh wow, look, I'm mm-hmm. I'm earning the same money, and I go there and these wonderful, passionate fans and whatever else, but that has to be balanced out, I think, think with what are these people contributing to Turkish football, and they don't all contribute. And also, especially to the growth of the um, of, of some of the younger Turkish players who might be coming through. Yeah, I think a, an interesting point you make there: um, the wrong kind of foreigners. And I think for years that has probably been because Turkey have had a pretty strict foreign limit for 
uh, as long as I can remember. And it's only recently been lifted in 2015, and we're now seeing to start, uh, we're starting to see the results of that with talented youngsters like Genghis Under, like Mary Demiral, on at a young age going out into one of the top five leagues in Europe, such as Serie A or Okayokushlu going to La Liga. Serdar Güler went there too. wasn't so much of a success, but. We have seen a, a, a large exodus, relatively uh, seen compared to the previous decade or so, which I think in the previous decade we had like three players uh, go out to a top five league, which were Arda Turan, Mehmet Topal, and the third one eludes me right now. But in the couple of years since uh, the, the foreign limit have been lifted, we've seen quite a lot more of those players and those players doing well. Uh, Charles Soinju did well in Germany. He's not so successful right now with Leicester, but... He's made that move. Um, of course, like I said, Mary Demiral, in, in basically six months' time, becoming going from an Alanya Sport player to a Juventus player. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if that's official yet, but it looks like he's going to Juve. Uh, and then, of course, Genghis Under, who's been doing great for, for Roma until his injuries recently. But we've seen that, that, that outflux of, of talented young players from Turkey now, and they're improving themselves by playing in those more competitive leagues. Um under better coaches and all that kind of stuff. And also with the foreigners, because of the foreign limit being lifted, now clubs have the opportunity to bring in a wider array of foreigners. You don't just have to bring in guys that, you know, quote unquote, guarantee short term success, because I think that's the logic behind signing a lot of these older guys. Uh, a lot of these guys kind of over the hill, maybe you're signing big names, not just for the fans benefit, but also because you think those players are going to give you short term success. And if you're only allowed five or six foreigners in a team, um, I think it's easier. I'm not saying it's the right way to go, but that's probably why that is that there's not always been the right kind of foreigner being attracted. But now under pressure of the Turkish prime minister Erdogan, there's he's putting pressure on the Turkish football federation to re-implement uh, a foreign limit. Um, so I would like to get your thoughts on that. I know there have been talk of, of implementing a foreign limit, I believe in Italy not too long ago because of the Italian national team not doing too well. And I know that this happened in England and I know it's happened in many other countries where they've, whenever the, their national team seem to be on a, on a downwards cycle or so, you know, because it's a cyclical sport, you don't always have the best generation. Um, what are your thoughts on, on implementing a foreign limit? And do you see maybe f forms of that working or, or not? So, I mean, there's a couple of points to make here. One is um, what they did in Italy, and it's about the extent that, that you can do, and, and in England too, is, well, as long as England's in the European Union, and we don't know how that's going to go. But obviously, with... England and Italy being members of the of the European Economic Area uh, and, and the EU, you know, you can't have a, f a limit on foreigners. It's just legally not possible. What you can limit is players from outside the EU. Um, that was a knee jerk reaction uh, in Italy, for example. After I think it was, I don't know. We've done so badly in recent World Cups; it's hard to remember. I can't remember if it was after. 2014 or, or, or 2010 um but the you know and then they went from i think it was two to one um non-eu but then it was like so if you're already there you're grandfathered in and you know as we often do in italy we, we find ways around it um in england they they have this 
work permit system where it's based on on the new systems based on wages and transfer fees. But, you know, the long and short of it is that it's it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult to implement. I think you have to be careful with it. Um, one place, if I were Turkey, and I, I think there might be some, some parallels a little bit, um, I would study the effects of the foreigner rule uh, on, on Russia. And the reason I suggest there might be some parallels is obviously you have a country that's, you know, part of Europe, plays in European competitions, but mm-hmm. isn't within the EU where you have, you know, some clubs that, that have a lot of money uh, and big budgets. And what happened in Russia with the foreigner rule, and they, they've tinkered with it a lot. They went from four to five, back to four. I'm not even sure where they're at now. Is that the rush? The, the the talented Russian players became very very expensive, and you had kind of a, a real inflationary uptick. They became so expensive that they didn't want to leave the country um, because they were they were earning big money um, because you know the big clubs still wanted to be competitive, so they just ended up paying these guys more, and they weren't really competing for places in the side you had guys who you know maybe were were russian internationals and they had big contracts and so their teams couldn't sell them and they knew that they really only had to they didn't i mean the accusation was that they they weren't really pushed once they were there and so actually the quality of the league suffered um it sort of created this kind of artificial bubble um so i think that would be something for for turkey to think about um yeah, that's, that's exactly what we had basically up until recently when it's that bo- that bubble finally started to burst but before we can reap the rewards of that properly they're already thinking of re-implementing it which is, yeah i mean uh, i i i'm kind of into macroeconomics and like mm-hmm. the idea that you know you can you can look at a league-wide level you can, you know, try to find things that that might work um, to stimulate certain aspects. Um, sometimes I wonder. I mean, one thing that I would love to see that they, they tried it in Italy in the third division, although not very well, and t- teams didn't like it, so they abandoned it. But and I don't know if this would work, you know, in in the top league and in in, in in the Super League in Turkey, but maybe in the second tier, for example, you know, if one of your concerns is is foreign players and, you know, maybe them stopping younger players from getting minutes. Um, one thing that they did was they made some of the, the TV money. Uh, they awarded it based on the number of minutes that a team gave to players under the age of 23. Um, and in Turkey, you could do it, for example, you know, the number of Turkish players under the age of 23 that, that you play, right, based on their minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you did that, what you might get is, you know, uh, a team that's in mid table saying, well, look, I'm not going to get promoted. Why don't I find out if my youngsters can play? And at least that way I'll get a little bit more TV money, for example, you know, that those kinds of, I think, positive incentives often work a little bit better. And, you know, they, they, they can tend to, they, they tend to open things up a little bit and lead teams to take, a little more chances on, mm-hmm. on youngsters. Yeah, I completely agree with you. 
Um, thank you very much for, for your insights on that and, and, and your views on that. Let me ask you quickly, were you surprised at all by Turkey beating France earlier last week? You know, I, I wasn't surprised because, I mean, obviously you are surprised because they're still the world champions. Mm -hmm. But I definitely saw it as within the realm of, of possibility. I mean, partly it's the old thing where, you know, you play the world champions, you're going to be you're going to be more motivated. Definitely. But part, partly also, I feel like you often get screwy results in these friendlies at the end of the season. You know, uh, it's a long year. The players want to go on holiday. You know, it's the start of the Euro qualifying campaign. In the back of everybody's minds, you know that um, even if you do screw up, you know, there's plenty of time to get back in it. Mm -hmm. Plus, I think, what is it, like three teams from each group qualify? To hitting um, the best turds, um, like a couple of best yeah. turds or something. But, 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 but you, you know what I'm driving at. Like, yeah. You don't have to play it, it, playoffs anymore or stuff like that if you end second. Yeah, so. the, 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 there's a certain sense of, oh, I just want to go on holiday, mm -hmm. I think. Um, Especially and, for but, those French players, probably, who had a very long season. Yeah, remember, they went all the way to the World Cup. And, mm -hmm. you know, that said, I think it's a reminder that, um, I mean, this is one of the reasons I was in favor of, of the Euro expansion is, you know, I think there's there's actually a lot of depth in Europe. I I don't think the gap between the top sides and you know the middle tier, or or, or, or the you know let alone the upper middle tier, is is as great as as people as people often suggest it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've seen that as well with the type of football being played by, for example, France at the World Cup. I mean, it wasn't uh, all that flashy all the time. It was kind of pragmatic i would say um yeah and that's what some that's a trend we've seen in international football for the last couple of tournaments for sure i think um what's your although take on... i think in oh, the sorry. case of france sorry no, i was yeah. just gonna say that's also because you have i that's think of, of yeah a very mediocre very risk averse mm -hmm. manager who ouch you know well it's uh, true <laughs> i mean put it this way uh, if if the world cup were a league And he tried to play like that; mm -hmm. he would not win the title. No, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying you have to play we, football all the time, but you know. Are, are we? Can we? Can we conclude therefore that Didier Deschamps is the equivalent of Shemel Ganesh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, especially the last two years at Besiktas, I think Shemel Ganesh showed a lot of that as well. But he's he's been a risk taker in other times in his career so he's he's kind of a mr what is it mr mr hyde and dr no dr dr hyde no whatever dr jekyll and mr <laughs> yeah, hyde exactly um so just quickly i want your take on, on the two players of course that have been uh starring in the syria Genghis under of course not as much this season due to injury um and, and mary demiral who's been a revelation really for i think both italian football fans but also turkish football fans because let's say a year ago we, we, we barely knew who he was Yeah, so I mean, it, on Monday I had I had lunch with um, with one of the uh, the Roma owners, um, I mean one of the minority owners, and uh, Alex Zeka, and he made the point that um, you know what's well, funny because I he has I think he has a thing about Turkish football because obviously he didn't just sign you know uh, Under who 
they're all really excited about. And, and then still, you know, they just wonder, you know, if he stays fit, you know, they see a lot of like a lot of the qualities that Mohamed Salah brought with him when, when he joined in, you know, in terms of, of the, the, the quick dribbling bursts and whatever. And, and maybe, you know, he just needs to play a little with a little bit more control and he can go to the next level. Um, he also signed this other guy, and I have no idea where he is. You, you guys might 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 know uh, Uchan. Oh, uh, Sally Uchan. Sally, yeah. Yes. Did he have like red hair? Am I remembering correctly? Or he he had a bit of a frizzy Afro esque yeah. kind Fellaini of kind of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what happened to him? I, he's I at Empoli know. now, but he, his was contract say, was uh, terminated. Easy. I think. Yeah, he he disappeared. No. Yeah, he might be heading to Galtzrai or something. He 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 was at Empoli but didn't play, um, and I think you know he'll he'll probably end up back in Turkey. But he's, right. he's still only like twenty three or something like that. So uh, could still come good. Yeah. Yeah. But no, but I mean, Under has been you know, as he said, you you want him to stay fit. There's actually, mm-hmm. I mean, at Roma, there's obviously you know a fair amount of competition on. Well, while it, the season ended in a very disappointing way. Um, you know, out on the flanks with uh, with Stefano Shirawi, Under, and uh, and Justin Cliver. Um, plus, of course, Zaniolo, where you don't quite know where what his best position is, but you just know that he needs to play somewhere because uh, he's so good. Um, there's a lot of competition, but he's definitely somebody that you know they they believe in. And as for you asked about about Demiral. Um, it's weird, and again, you guys might better know, but am I right in thinking that he was in he was in Turkey, and then he went to Portugal, and then he went back to Turkey? Wasn't he at, like Sporting or something? Yeah, the the it, the story with him, he was in the the Fenerbahce youth team up until I think the under nineteens, and then his agent took him to the Portuguese third division, and from there he went to Sporting. I believe they uh, were sold to Sporting from this Portuguese third division team. Uh, he was then loaned to Alanya Sport at the start of last season, and six months in, he was he went to um, Sassuolo. Uh, probably yeah. butchered the pronunciation there. Sorry. No, no, um, no. It's actually very good. Um, he, they, they, they triggered his. Uh, they had a clause, by the way. They triggered it. They bought him, and then they sold him. I, I believe, didn't they? Yes, and Fenerbahce are not going to get any of the sell-on fees now as well, which is a, a very, you know, being a Fenerbahce fan, quite, you know, upset about that. Happy to see him doing well, but upset that we're not going to see any financial gain from his future transfer fees, which should obviously help us yeah. right now. And those could be pretty big. Yeah, it's, um, but wasn't he a Turkish, but it's not like he was an on, so... What did he do? Just exploit? Did they just exploit the fact that he turned eighteen, so so he could move on a? He didn't sign a professional contract. Is that what happened? Yeah, he didn't sign a. Yes, sorry to cut you off there, Gap. Um, he didn't sign a professional contract, and he was abroad for one and a half years. So I believe that under the FIFA regulations, because he was has played abroad for one and a half years, um, then Fenerbahce aren't liable to receive any portions of transfer deals, whereas that's not the case, obviously, for someone like Genghis Inder, who came up at Altenordor and signed his professional contract. Um, I think he was a Boschak Shihir before he went out to Roma? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. one season, I think. 
just yeah, well, I think it was with his one season, and he was great. <laughs> right. Wow. I mean, he he certainly um, he certainly looks a player. I mean, I you know obviously uh, he has a big body, um, but he he's he's athletic and um, you know had a really strong end of the season uh, at uh, at Sassuolo. Um and I think and I think it's it's I'm not you know there were rumors that Juventus might sign another defender and they're talking about bringing back Meditanasia but I don't think that's going to happen so I think it's actually you know I, I think he should get a fair amount I mean if the deal goes through and it looks like it will um, he should get a fair amount of, of minutes because obviously Barzagli's retired Cáceres are not going to keep around so you know it's it's Bonucci, Chiellini um, and Rugani and then him and you know, Chiellini isn't, you know, he'll give you 20, 25 games. He's not going to play much more than that. And Bonucci has a knack for getting suspended. So, so yeah, he should, he should get on the pitch quite a bit. Uh, fantastic. Um, and from, from there, Gav, I'd just like to transition into uh, 2002 Turkish World Cup team. Um, if you're a follower of Turkish football, everybody knows where you were, uh, the day that Ilhan Mansis scored his golden goal against Senegal. Uh, but looking back at that 2002 World Cup team, you know, why, what are your thoughts on why you think they did so well in getting to third place? I mean, is it because they didn't play in the European teams, the luck of the draw, for example? And then do you see any correlation between that team and the current crop of, of, of youngsters that we have right now? Um, so just interested to get your your thoughts um, on that. Well, I'm uh, I'm trying to think. I'm thinking back to um, 2002 World Cup, uh, and you guys might need to to refresh my memory a little bit. They, I know that they they lost to Brazil, and obviously in the semifinal, and then obviously it was uh, it was it was Senegal. Um, yeah, it was Japan the, and Japan. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So it was in the um, group stages that we the first game was a, a loss to Brazil, followed by a draw to Costa Rica, and then the three nil win against three nil win against China. Yeah, um, that got us second, and we played Japan in the second round, who had who had won their group ahead of Belgium. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's coming back to me. Yeah, and from there we went on to face Senegal in the quarterfinals, who had. That shocked the whole tournament with the opening win against France. Yes, and then, then, then the meeting with Brazil again in the semi-final, leading on to South Korea, also who had a remarkable, remarkable run that tournament. And um, Hakan Shukur has you know, gone quick down goal. in the history, the quickest Golden World Cup history after doing nothing for the entire tournament. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So okay. R- Rivaldo also went down in history as being the biggest cheater ever <laughs> after that. Uh, yeah, the, after the first match against Brazil, yeah. when the ball hit him in the leg, yes, that's right, by the face. corner flag. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, and then the second game was supposed to be our revenge, but that didn't pan out exactly. Ronaldo didn't uh, agree with that narrative. I mean, look, I think people will will look at the draw, right, and they'll say, well, you know, other than having to play Brazil twice, which kind of sucks, but other than that, you know, things, 
you know, things on paper, you know, definitely broke Turkey's way, certainly in the group stage, because I remember China being pretty awful and probably Costa Rica, Turkey on paper should have done, should have done better than. Then again, it's also, you know, Japan, it's also the host nation. Um, and that Senegal side was, was a very good Senegal side. What I remember from, from that Turkey team um, is there were actually a lot of players who, who obviously had a lot of quality. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the Rushdu in, in, in goal jumps out. Um, I thought Alpai got a raw deal in England. I actually thought, you know, he was, he was a very good, um, you know, he was a v- very good player for, for what was here. Um, um, and, you know, and, and then for what he, he contributed. And I, I think, think he, he had a moment where, where, where he had a, he had a bit of a row with David Beckham when Turkey were playing England. Yeah. yeah. That cost his reputation yeah. back in the Premier yeah, League. Yeah, but you know, but as a player, yeah, balls yeah, he had... and you needed that. And, yeah, no. um, I was in there also, was it uh, Bulent as well? Bulent Kokmas, yeah. Yes, very experienced. Right, yeah. Galatasaray, right? legend. Galatasaray, yeah. yeah. And then obviously in midfield, you know, you had two guys who, from what I remember, was, you know, he was almost like sort of a stereotypical English player from what we saw here with, with the commitment and, 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 and the leadership. And then obviously Emre and, uh, and Bastor providing a lot of quality and, you know, and and Hakan Chakor was really good center forward. So, uh, I mean, when when you look at it, there's probably a lot more a lot more quality in that in that team mm-hmm. than 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 and you know that I guess that was also to me is what I'm saying is that was also a big part of of the narrative. You know, um, I, I don't. You guys would know better than me, but. I can't imagine too many other Turkey sides in recent memory Not having of, as much. That was the golden generation, quality. without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I think the current generation has a lot of talent, but there's still gaps to be filled there. Um, yeah, but by the way, uh, being able to list so many players from 2002 World Cup team is is a lot more impressive than uh, remembering our conversation from 2013. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't get to the semi final. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> But, but do you see any, any um, in the current generation of Turkey's team, do you, do you see maybe the foundations to maybe a next silver generation, golden generation? Do you think the potential is there right now with the, the, the young up-and-comers like like Ameri Demiral, Cengiz Under, Okay Yokoşlu? I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the two young, well, three really, but in the current national team, the, the young Trabzonspor guys, Yusuf Yazici, uh, Abdulkadir Umur. Those are two really talented young and up-and-comers. Um, there's, there's quite a few there, and then of course we have Hakan Chalhanolo. Who um, I don't I don't know if we have any fans of Hakan Chalhanolo on the podcast actually. <laughs> well, he um, I mean he certainly did not have a a great season. Um, mm. He did better towards the end uh, at Milan, but he certainly you know for long stages. He was he was not particularly uh, impressive in in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the I mean of of the guys of the guys you mentioned. I mean obviously we, we we've covered um, Under and, um, and 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 Demiral. 
Um, I mean, I think uh, the, the the kid who's at Villarreal is it is it Unal? I'm thinking. Oh, and it's Unal. I I think he's a very from from what I've seen of him, you know, he's he's a very fluid um he's a very fluid player. Um you know, his uh uh I, I obviously things didn't quite work out at at uh at, at lead um well certainly at club level and and obviously I, he I I remember I remember when he, he was at City I, I don't know if it was under an under twenty three game or, or, or something or friendly. You know, he he looks like a very natural he looks very natural in his movements. Um of the others, the Gracious yeah. like a swan, perhaps. <laughs> he, I mean, you know, he he looks he looks like a technical player, you know. Um I think with him maybe he lacks a little bit of that um you know, like a Burak Yilmaz, for example, who is, is far from a technically refined player, but he has that desire to score every game. And I think that's something that's, that's invaluable to a striker, especially when you may not be the most talented striker around. But yeah, that might be something the, the he's still... The ruthlessness. Yeah. And the killer instincts. Yeah. Yeah, he, you know, um, the other guy, I'm forgetting on his name, the, the other guy who's getting a lot of buzz... Um, Ziki Ziki Chelik maybe? The, no, the right no, back no. From Lille? I I've, I'm familiar with him. No, I was thinking of the um, the is it is that Trabs on sport? Maybe one of the guys. Uh, is it Yusuf? I'm thinking Yusuf Yazid. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. then Abdul Kadir Umur is probably the one getting more buzz because he's been linked with Liverpool and everything. But I think Yusuf is ready for a move abroad. But uh, he's he's I'm I'm a huge fan of Yusuf. I think he's a fantastic talent. Um, Saying it as a as a Bishkish fan who he uh, scored against a couple of weeks ago, uh, a screamer. <laughs> uh, but he's he's a fantastic player. I think uh, I I really think he is already at this stage a better footballer than Hakan Chalhanola is, uh, even though that uh, Yusuf has still a long way to go. But he has a far higher ceiling. I think I think Chalhanola is of course that set piece specialist. But apart from that, I'm not a big fan of him. Never have been really. Right, and there was another guy, I think, who who had a really poor season this year. I think he's um, he's one of those sort of German Turkish guys who's at he was at Hamburg, but before that, I think he might have been at Stuttgart, maybe. Um, oh, Yunus. He's, he's very young. He's an attacking midfielder. He's like. Maybe twenty years old or something. Um, he was definitely at Hamburg this year. Oh, um, didn't, he just sign, he had, didn't he just sign? Didn't you just sign with Bayern? Uh, what's his name? He's been. He's definitely been capped for Turkey. Um, uh, no, I'm thinking of someone else. He's been capped. Who's the guy? Who's who's the young Turkish guy that signed with Bayern? But he, I think he's been capped for Germany. But I'm forgetting his name. It's not Yusuf Mollu, is it? Gabriel? No, no, Yunus Mollu is like a lot older. Yeah. Uh, Hamburg, no, Hamburg. The, the, this guy, this guy was at Hamburg. And I think before that he was at Stuttgart. Stuttgart obviously have a, you know, they have a very good youth academy. Yeah. Um, Arguably the best in Germany. Uh, yeah. Um, 
I want to say Bur Burkai maybe or something like that. Berkai. Yeah. Ah, Berkai is John. Yes, yes, they are. That, that's right. John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's about 20, 21, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he. I think he's been capped a couple of times, but uh, yeah. he wasn't recently by Shemar Ganesh. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe it was he was injured or something. I'm, I can't quite recall. I think he definitely missed uh, missed part of the season um, through through injury. Um, okay, yeah, that would explain it. That would explain it. Shinal Ganesh might have just not known that he was Turkish, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we ha- well, recently, there's a there's a player that plays for Antalya Spor. His name is Nazim Sangare, but he's uh, of, um, I believe, uh, which which origin is he from? Uh, he's somewhere in Africa, but I'm not sure. So anyway, he's. His darker skin, so uh, he was asked by a journalist, Sinal Ganesh was, why he didn't call him up because he had a really good season. And he, he just flat out said, well, I didn't even realize he was uh, eligible. I didn't know he was Turkish. Yeah, that's a little bit like our friend Didier Deschamps talking about <laughs> calling up Koulibaly when, you know, he's been capped like 30 times for Senegal. So, Oh, my yeah. God. Yet more similarities between these two guys. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Hey, at least you know Ganesh has won something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, apart from a World Cup, of course, for did this show, but I'm not counting that. <laughs> uh, well, shall we transition into the financial fair play conversation, um, if, if that's okay with uh, all of you? Perfect. Okay. Uh, so basically, what I wanted to ask you first, Gabriele, is a lot, all the basically all the Turkish top clubs are or were under a financial fair play settlement. Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Besiktas, uh, and Trabzonspor. Now, Besiktas have, since uh, last month, successfully completed their four-year settlement uh, alongside Inter, I believe they, they completed theirs as well, and Astana. Um, so they have successfully completed their, their financial fair play settlement. Now, as a Besiktas fan, I, I follow the financial situation of the club relatively closely, and I find it very puzzling. I was... I was I was wholly convinced that they were not going to make it. It was going to be impossible to reach full break-even. Because of the financial situation in Turkey right now, the economical decline of of the lira uh, this past, well, the previous summer, which which was dramatic, which had a huge impact as well on on the Turkish clubs. Um, Now, my question to you is, do you think that UEFA took that into account when they were evaluating uh, the settlement agreements um, this past, past couple of months? Because... I honestly cannot fathom how else Besiktas were able to, to complete their settlement. Okay, so you you mean like uh, the, the compliance with the settlement agreements? Yeah, um, whether they took the, the Turkish economy's nosedive into account. Yeah. So again, I I don't I you know I, I don't know exactly what they looked at, but there is a provision um, in financial fair play um, that takes into account. Uh, force majeure, you know, elements beyond beyond yeah. your control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that, uh, and I don't know if, if this is what happens, but there are mechanisms in place uh, in accounting where, you know, you 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 would benchmark against the euro on a certain date. So. I'm purely speculating here because I I genuinely don't know. Yeah, it's difficult um, to. But yeah. you know, so Besiktas obviously they'll they'll you know they'll have some revenue coming in from from their domestic TV deal in in Turkey and and, mm-hmm. and Turkish uh, sponsorship deals, and obviously the box office, and then they'll have 
revenue coming in um, from UEFA and from player trading with foreign clubs, which comes in, in, in obviously in, in, in foreign currency. Mm-hmm. So it all depends how they accounted for that. Um, obviously, if they can show, for example, that you know if they were making a thousand Turkish lira and it was worth you know a hundred Swiss francs or or your hundred euros, let's say, uh, I don't even know if it's exchange rate. I'm just using an example. Uh, and then you know the following season, they're making fifteen hundred Turkish lira, but because of the exchange rate or whatever, it's now worth less than Swiss francs, they can argue, well, wait a minute, you know, we're showing growth here. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't reached break even, but that's simply, that's simply an accounting thing. The other thing to consider is that, you know, if the Turkish lira nosedives, yeah, the pictures, the, the, the numbers will look worse, but equally, you know, if their wage bill, since they pay their salaries and, Turkish lira, their wage bill also goes goes down, right? When you when you yeah. look at it that unfortunately, way. almost all contracts are in euros, which is one of the big problems in in, in Turkey. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a. Uh... But 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 it, I think it's it's they, they still have provisions accounting wise to take that yeah. into account. You know, if... usually it's it's like you said, it's indeed it sets to a certain currency level. Um, for example, let's the, the the deal with BN Sports for the TV money is also set at let, let's let's say uh, they they made the deal for seven hundred million euros. I believe it's more six hundred or something uh, per year, um, but then it's set to a certain currency like three point four. Now every every uh, euro is worth three point four lira or something. But now right now the lira is more like uh, one euro is six lira. So, but it's set still to the three point four for example. So. They do set it uh, like a benchmark, like you said. Right. That is correct. Um, let's see. I mean, I, I think what people need to remember mm-hmm. about financial fair play is that, I mean, the risk of sounding like a UEFA spokesman, you know, it's meant to it's meant to help the clubs, mm-hmm. um, and you know, as long as they're increasing revenues and, and cutting costs, if the numbers don't add up because of a financial crisis, for example, or, or natural disaster or whatever, they, they, they will take that into account. Okay, that's, that, that, that's, uh, that explains a lot, I think, yeah, even though it's, of, of course, unconfirmed, but I think that's one of the few ways it, it would make sense. Um, for example, we're also now seeing that Fenerbahce have apparently gotten a, a, an extension until the end of the month to get their uh, break-even requirement in order um, but it's it's to be assumed then that for example they I think believe I believe they're at the stage now where they need to reach full break even they're in their one to last year, um, so I'm not sure if that's a 10 million deficit or a, or if it's supposed to be full break even. Um, but they they were a couple of months ago they did announce that they were roughly at like 60 minus 60 million minus, uh, but they have collected in over 30 million euros from uh, campaigns with the fans uh, to to raise money for the club. Uh, and UEFA have apparently now given them until the end of this month uh, to sort that out. I don't know, Burak, if there's been any update on that. I haven't heard an official word from the, the club on how much extra money has been raised since the initial 32, 33 million euros, which was through donations for, for shirt sales, which is, if you think about it, it's quite remarkable that the, the fans have and, and business um, people around the world have contributed 
nearly 32, 33 million euros to the club. Um, I think the main thing we're waiting for now is the banks to try and restructure the loans, which was what Ali Koch, the chairman of Fenerbahce, was trying to instigate at the recent um, Turkish Football Federation meeting. So we wait to see. Um, I don't think we're going to get the, the full break-even, which is required for this season. So it will be down to UEFA uh what type of punishment they they choose to impose they did say they were impressed with the amount of money that had been sourced so far but that it wasn't enough so we'll have to wait and see what the outcome of the meeting is i know Ali Koch will be attending that meeting in person at the end of june and we should know in the first week of july what the the decision is yeah, uh, financial fair play. Um, it's personally, I'm 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 a fan of the concept. I think it's a great concept because Turkish clubs needed that because spending in Turkey was out of control. I think the Turkish clubs needed it. Unfortunately, of course, we do see that uh, clubs like Manchester City, Paris Saint Germain, they're kind of exploiting it, going around it, uh, kind of making a mockery out of it, and that does not sit well with a lot of people of who are fans of those affected clubs, but. But the rumors are that Manchester City might actually be slapped with a ban uh, of, of the Champions, uh, Champions League ban or Euro- European ban, but unconfirmed, of course. Uh, Burak, please, uh, I believe you had a question as well related to financial fair play with uh, with Gals, right? Uh, yes, uh, uh, Gabriela. Um, it was um, recently um, when there's an open financial fair play case against Galatasaray, I think it's due to end at the end of the the 21-22 season. But UEFA wanted to open a reinvestigation into this for for reasons that they saw fit. Um, This was appealed by by Galatasaray, and it was an appeal they won from CAS um, due to the fact that the... Uh, I've got it verbatim here actually which says if you want to dismiss a case or to conclude or amend a settlement agreement or to apply disciplinary measures then this must be reviewed within 10 days from the date of communication of the decision to the the CFCB chairman this was done after the the, the 10 days so um, Galatasaray won the decision, so CAS awarded them the decision and UEFA were, were not allowed to reopen their investigation into financial fair play. The existing financial fair, financial fair play statement is still in, in place, so that will take Galatasaray up to the end of 21-22. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, you know, we've, we've seen headlines, um, CAS delivers a bloody nose to UEFA, uh, UEFA hit a speed bump in the role of financial fair play. Um, how much was this, do you think, down to just UEFA incompetence for not knowing their own rules to having to follow up after 10 days? And how will this affect other clubs under financial fair play moving forward? Does this give them a little bit of a one-upmanship? Well, I, I, I think that what happened here is very similar to what happened to, to Paris Saint-Germain. And I think we need to make a distinction because, you know, we often talk about, you know, UEFA does this and UEFA does that. I Technically, there are, you know, the, 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 there's three bodies at play here, right? One is the, the investigatory chamber, um, which is, there, there are, you know, there, there's, there's, there are UEFA people on it. The other people are, you know, you can go online and see who sits on it. They're mostly independent people, football administrators, former football administrators and stuff. 
and they work together with UEFA's accountants and whatever, and they go and they investigate the club finances. They're, they're essentially they're they're like auditors, and if they if they see uh, a breach of financial fair play rules, um, they have two options. They can either offer a club a settlement, um, which is you know that's what happened to Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain and Inter and and obviously probably got that's right here. Or if the breach is, is deemed to be too serious, um, or indeed if the club uh, rejects the, the settlement, um, then it goes to the um, uh, to to the adjudicatory chamber. Uh, the adjudicatory chamber, um, it's five judges, and those guys are really totally independent. I mean, you know, one guy is like. Uh, former head of the European Court of Justice, another guy's like a, a QC. You know, these are people who are who are really outside. You know, this really is an independent panel. These are people who are outside the world of football. And, and these are judges who are just asked to um, to, to basically go and uh, um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of, you know, adjudicate the situation. Um, within the investigatory chamber... There, there's. How can I put this? UEFA can basically, UEFA's UEFA can offer a settlement without the approval of the investigatory chamber uh, as a whole. Um, and there's a certain time limit, and which is what happened in this case, for them to 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 to. Um, to strike down the settlement agreement and reopen the investigation. And that's what happened with Galatasaray. Galatasaray then took the case to the Court of Arbitration for Sports, which is, as the name implies, it's an, it's an arbitration. You have a list of like 100 sports lawyers who can be called as judges. Um, the tribunal appoints one judge, and then one judge is appointed each by the plaintiff and by the, by the defendant. And I think... As I understand it, in Galatasaray's case, it was basically a procedural thing, um, where it wasn't the, the request wasn't filed, wasn't filed in time. I I mean, for me, I don't think this is a reflection on, on UEFA. I think it's a reflection on on the investigatory chamber and the the adjudicatory chamber and, and the way the way that they operate. Um, it is a procedural thing. It is a bit of a technicality, I think, in this case. But you know, all this stuff is subjective, right? Even the, you know, even the decision to to offer a settlement agreement or or not, um, you know, that's that's down to that's down to UEFA. You know, UEFA would say if they were in on this phone call that they want to help clubs. They want to help clubs by giving them realistic goals and targets um, that they have to meet as part of their as part of their punishment. Oh, yeah. Uh, Uzra, can you uh, pick in with your question? Yeah, absolutely. Th thanks very much for uh, giving us the insight into that, um, into, into how these kind of processes works. But it's just uh, a another thing that Galatasaray won at the end of the day, so I'm smiling as I listen to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Typical ask Typical girls, sl- right? Now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being a good ambassador. Poor though, winners, man. poor winners. I'm, no, I'm not. Ex- being, I'm not being a good ambassador. It's a perfect club, reflection of the of your club. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, but I'm actually gonna move into a slightly more um, generalist uh, question here, more about European football, um, and start talking about the planned third club competition that UEFA is bringing, trying to bring in the UEFA Europa League Two, as its project name is. Um, I want to get your insight into think. Do, do you think that smaller clubs who are involved in that will will really take it seriously? Will it be kind of um, have the same Europa League effect? And do you also think there'll be an impact on the on the real Euro- Europa League? Will it having a competition underneath it mean that it's going to give a kind of more elevated status to the Europa League going forward? Um. So I think. You know, there's a bit of a risk if you if you follow the big five leagues, um, especially if you live in England uh, as as I do. You know, the bigger teams are all in the Champions League, and they're often getting their knockout round, and the emphasis is all on that. And so, you know, the Europa League is like the the ugly stepsister, um, which then would make the you know Europa League two like you know the the weirdo relative where you lock in the attic and. You never talk, <laughs> you know. But, but would, it, would it make the ugly stepsister slightly more attractive? In possibly, terms? yeah. Um, but you know what? There's another element to it as well. Um, and, you know, I was recently at the European Clubs Association meeting in, in, in Malta. And there were a ton of clubs that basically said, you know, we need this. You know, there's, there's an extreme polarization going on in Europe right now between the the big five leagues and everybody else. Um, and it's a polarization of revenue. It's a polarization of, of interest. Um, you know, people came out, uh, you know, the, the guy from who's the chairman of Legia Warsaw, and he said, well, you know, we're, we're one of the biggest clubs in Poland, but, you know, people flip on the television and they watch Real Madrid and Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain and, and Bayern and whatnot, you know, they're not, they, they, these are all people who are not watching our leagues and they're not supporting our leagues. So we need to find a way to, to develop and, and, and we need to, to just play beyond our borders. We need to, to play against teams of, of equal ability from, from other leagues. That's how we can grow. That's how we can develop, you know, Aki Rilati, who is the, um, he's the president of, of Helsinki. You know, he said we have three thousand five hundred, you know, players um, at all levels, from from youth team to the first team, and you know, we go into the Europa League preliminaries, we lose, and we go home, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there there has to be something else to allow us to grow and and and, and whatever. Now, um, and I think that the, and I think you know, you look at some of these, um, you know, some of these Europa League matches, I don't know, I was talking to the guy from, from Rapid Vienna and, you know, they played, they played Rangers in the Europa League, I don't know, this year, last year, whatever it was, you know, and he was telling this me year, how, I think. this year, yeah, he said how it was, it was a really, really big deal to them. Um, and it did galvanize their fans and it galvanized, um, you know their city, and and then there was a whole like build up to the game, and 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 I think there's a real risk. You know, so much of media is dominated by you know obviously 
English is the lingua franca in the world. It's dominated by the big clubs and, you know, the English media, you know, looking down on the Europa League and whatever. But, you know, it really does make a big difference to, to a lot of these clubs on a, on a local level. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm imagining, you know, in, in Turkey, you know, obviously this is not something for the big three. They probably wouldn't want to be in it and maybe they grumble if they were and maybe, you know, Basak Sayer too, but, you know, the next level down, if they can go on a run in it, they, you know, they, they, they get to play some European football. Um, yeah. and I, I don't have a problem with, it. I think it's a positive and, think it's going to come in in the 2022 season if i'm not mistaken and i'm curious to see how they uh, how they do it it might also be yeah. very interesting for clubs to build up their club coefficient before because right now what we're seeing a lot with clubs that you know they they win their first cup ever they they finish in the top five for the first time qualify for europe and then they get into europe and they're there at zero individual coefficient and they they draw um Utrecht or Feyenoord or a big club from Holland or a big club from uh, Poland, for example, or from from Scotland in in those Europa League qualifiers. You know, when you're on Malatya Spor and you have to play against Rangers, that's a great fixture. But I think you'd rather have that in the group stages rather than in the qualifiers where you know you're almost doomed to go out. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a really good point. And, you know, it's... You know, so so maybe you know Everton or Wolves here in England aren't going to care about this, but mm-hmm. you know, I think for a lot of clubs, you know, why not? It's not like they have to, they have a problem with fixture congestion or, or anything like that. And and playing, you know, playing these extra games, I think, can only be a positive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, sorry, I think you had a follow-up. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that as well. I think it links in with something you mentioned earlier too about trying to get the kind of the middle or the lower middle tier quality of football to get get them more competitive because i'm sure there'll be a lot of exciting games amongst these this level of team um so it is it, it's, it's good it's good in european football to uh, to spread the love so I, I think a lot of people in turkey will be would be pro it for, for those reasons that you've outlined but my next question is more kind of about the the elite level of football about champions league um and uh, to tie into some comments that were made recently by by Edwin van der Sar, um, who who kind of was lamenting on the qualification process for Ajax, who almost reached the final, uh, and yet have to play two qualifying rounds to reach next season's Champions League group stage, whereas someone who finished fourth in La Liga or Italy, UK or or, or Germany can just kind of waltz straight in. Uh, do you think that's fair? And do you think that the uh, the ex- expansion of the top four? teams from the top four associations is, is something that UEFA will stick with going forward? I mean, that's something that happened three years ago. Um, uh, although I think it only came into effect this season. I don't... No, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's fair. Um, I know why it's there. It's there because the teams at the top, have they generate more money and they generate... You know, it it has to do with the way the UEFA prize money is. You know, as, as you probably know, there's there's an element of prize money and there's an element of something they call the market pool, where yeah. you know you're guaranteed a bigger slice of your domestic Champions League TV contract. So, for example, you know, um, the UK, uh, the United Kingdom, and and 
think it includes the Republic of Ireland too. Um, well, I'm not sure, but the way, you know, they have a bigger TV deal. So clubs from the Premier League get more money from it. And so to maintain that broadcasters, you know, will say, I want to have four English teams so that I can continue to, um, so I can continue to, 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 to pay what I've been paying. You know, that's the reality of it. Holland is a small TV market and, or, you know, relatively small compared to them. And, and that's, that, that's a fact of it. You know, if you wanted to be super cynical, you would go to van der Sar and say, I'm sorry, Edwin, how much money did IX make from the Premier League, from the Champions League this year? Um, okay, well, if you want, you can go straight to the group stages next year, but the overall pot is going to be smaller and you're going to make less money because there's going to be more risk involved for uh, English clubs or, or German clubs or Italian clubs not qualifying. Um, you know, that's, that's fundamentally the, that's fundamentally the, the, the trade-off that's there. Um, I don't know. I don't know how we how we resolve that because it's not fair from a, in a sporting sense, but equally, it suits the clubs that are in it because they all get more money. If, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, and I believe that the, the top leagues also kind of well, the top clubs kind of threatens UEFA a little bit of look either you do this or we go and form our own elite league so to speak because there's been spe- talk well, of that for a couple of years right yeah that so that's that's one of the big things so when it happened and i think it was 2016 actually um you had a situation where there was definitely a vacuum at the top of uefa because michel platini had obviously been um well, he had his legal problems with FIFA, so he was forced to resign. He was the president. John Infantino, who was the general secretary, he uh, um, he ran for, for, you know, he left to go run for the FIFA presidency. And, you know, the people running were UEFA at the time were, I think it was on an interim basis, it was Angel Maria Villar from Spain, who, who later had his own uh, legal troubles. Uh, for stuff he did while at FIFA, and um, Theo Theodoridis, who's Greek, who's still, I think, is still there as the Secretary General, I think. Um, but, you know, you kind of had, like, the bigger, more charismatic, more powerful bosses who who had left, and, you know, you had the clubs kind of saying, all right, how can we make more money from the from the Champions League? I know let's have more guaranteed places for the big teams from the big leagues. And there were definitely clubs that, you know, threatened, threatened a boycott. They threatened a breakaway as they often do. Um, this time around, you might've heard about some of the proposals that are out there and we'll see how things shape up after 2022. But, um, you know, at least they're talking, at least they're having open consultation. You know, at least we, we have a proposal, um, it's a proposal that nobody seems to like, except for the Juventus uh, president, John, uh, Andrea Agnelli. But at least we have something that we can discuss, and at least the consultations are, you know, are happening, um, which is better than 2016 when it was all behind closed doors. 
Yeah. And just one more, I want to just pick up into that point of, uh, of Ajax, and I completely understand where they are coming from, but we also need to keep in mind that if you look at where they are in the coefficient rankings right now, there's a reason they don't have a, a ticket straight into the Champions League anymore, because... As a nation, they haven't really performed all that well over the past five years. Yes, we've had, of course, that sensational run of Ajax this year. And two years ago, they had a really good run in the Europa League. But apart from that, they've also had an abysmal run in the Champions League, where I think they didn't even get to the group stages. Uh, Feyenoord haven't really performed in Europe. PSV have really not done all that well. Utrecht haven't all done all that well. I mean, there's a reason why they're there. I mean, Turkey are above them. And look how Turkish teams perform, how much of a hot and cold performance that is. So the fact that we that Turkey are above Holland should also kind of say something in the sense of, well, you know, you did great this past season, but it's not just based on that. I, I think the five-year thing is really fair. Um, but of course, I understand the frustration where you see a team like Tottenham ending fourth, almost fourth or third every year in, in, in the Premier League, yet they're in the Champions League with guaranteed money every year. I, I completely understand that frustration. Whereas, as a Turkish team, for example, you, you even if you get second place, you're probably not going to get into the Champions League still. Although now, of course, with those big teams like a Napoli, a Tottenham, Arsenal, out of those qualifiers, you have a better chance. But it's still tough, of course, to get through those qualifiers. It's early in the season. You're playing other teams of a similar level. Um, but yeah, I mean, also with that, with that that third competition being added, we, we, we're seeing so many seven nils these time, these days. It's always seven nil, never nine, unfortunately <laughs> for Besiktas fans like me. Um, but we're seeing so many seven nils the last couple of years in the group stages, and we often say that well, the real tournament doesn't start until the group stages are over. Um, and and the, and the difference between those top teams right now, and obviously Ajax kind of uh, upset the status quo a little bit this season, but traditionally we're always seeing kind of the same teams in those final eight, um, and, and the difference is just too big. So I, I get that third competition being added, especially for those Scandinavian leagues and those leagues like outside of the top 15 of, uh, of the, the European of the European uh, coefficient rankings, I completely get that and and see why they want that. Um, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a big thing for for Turkey, Holland, Belgium, who still are competitive, relatively speaking, uh, Portugal, Russia, like that. But I, I completely understand for Scotland or something that's very interesting. And I, I'm I for one, I'm looking forward to it. I'm a huge fan of the Europa League, so. Um, I hope to uh, to see that third uh, that, that third league in there. For me, Europa League is still the most pure form of European football there is right now. Right. Um, I mean, I, I think there, there there's two other elements to to bear in mind. You know what you said before about well, the Champions League doesn't get started until the the knockout phases, and I hear that all the time here in England. And I kind of want to remind people that look, both finalists this year as well as Ajax, um, it came down to their last group stage game. You know, they could have all been eliminated mm-hmm. in the group stage. Yeah. Liverpool and Spurs advanced from the group stage with the same points total. And this takes close to home because it's two Italian clubs, but the same points total and the same goal difference as Inter and Napoli. So, you know, it couldn't have been a finer margin. Liverpool, I think, advanced because of um, they scored more goals, and Spurs, I think, was a better head-to-head, if or, or the other way around. 
um, you know, they their whole season could have panned out completely differently. You know, maybe if Liverpool had been knocked out, maybe they would have won the Premier League. Who knows? You know, so yeah. to go in and dismiss the the group stages, you know, simply because you get those situations where you know one team wins four in a row and then they're through, I, I think is just just incorrect and not you know not grounded in reality. And then the other point that's worth making, too, and this is one of the things that UEFA often brought up in, in their defense, is with prize money, if we are concerned about polarization and, and super clubs and, and that kind of stuff, you know, let's remember, if, if, if there was no market pool and all the market pool money were, were allocated along the same lines as, um, as they allocate the prize money, then... Ajax would, you know, be taking home what, 80 million, something like that, maybe a little more. Um, you give Ajax 80 million, then they dominate, you know, without they dominate the Dutch league financially, you know, and and that is a competitive league as we know, you know, it's obviously very, very, very close. And you know, you can imagine the impact in other leagues, like whether it's Greece or or, or whatever. And so then you, yeah, maybe they can compete a little better in Europe, but it really becomes no contest in their domestic leagues. And, and then that, and that becomes a problem as well. So I, I think there, have to be, there has to be a rethink um, because I think this, this issue with polarization um, isn't, it's not just about money. Um, there's got to be measures in place that they need to come up with mechanisms whether it's limiting loans or limiting squad sizes or or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever, um, to, to, there's got to be a better way to balance things out. Do you think ideally it should be the goal of UEFA to um, decrease the gap between those top four, top five leagues and the rest of Europe? Or do you think it's just not realistic and that's not never going to happen because of the power those clubs uh, in those leagues hold? Um, I, I think UEFA's job is to do what's best for its members and and there's 55 uefa member nations and doing what's best for their members you know let, let's not forget again i don't have the numbers but i would imagine that you know probably half the uefa member nations have never played in the champions league and probably never will at this stage you know um half the teams come from you know, or more than half the teams come from the same five nations. And that's fine if you want to use the Champions League as, as a showcase, but you have to take care of, of the rest of the league somehow too. You know, you can't further increase the gap between rich and poor. Or European football can't become a means of simply, you know, increasing and polarizing the gap between rich and poor in the, in the domestic leagues. Um, there are ways to, to fight back. Uh, one proposal, which, God, it's been around for like 15 years. Um, and I think they they tried it in women's football uh, between Belgium and Holland for several seasons. I don't know how it worked out, but I mean... In Benelliga, you mean? Yeah. So imagine, you know, I think it was... Um, I think it was the PSV president many years ago mm-hmm. who, who suggested, well, what if we had, you know, Portugal, Scotland... Holland and Belgium together in and we had but you know the Atlantic League um and like didn't have the old Balkans Cup 
in the 70s Something as like well. that. Yeah, and they've done it in basketball, right? They, yeah. Um, uh, there's, I mean, obviously in basketball you have the EuroLeague, but then I think I'm right in saying there's also um, the former Yugoslav nations play together in, in some kind of super national league as well. Um, you know, if you're talking about increasing the level, increasing the competition, you know, increasing the size of the market so you achieve critical mass, you could think about having some sort of, of regional league along those lines. You know, you could think of having Scandinavia. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you risk opening a political can of worms in some cases. I don't know how <laughs> Turkey, how, Greece, how, and Israel. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> Turkey, Greece, and Israel. That, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, I also think, fuck it. If the if they can do it in basketball mm-hmm. in the former Yugoslavia, where they were literally, you know, killing each other, yeah, twenty years ago, um, you know, maybe maybe we are grown up enough about this. You know, maybe you know, maybe we'll see Olympiakos taking on Galatasaray in the you know some kind of whatever you want to call it league. I I don't know. <laughs> But I think the master league, right? <laughs> I, 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 I think we need to start thinking in we need to start thinking in those terms um, if we want to kind of recalibrate a little bit the the, the power in Europe and um, you know and and, and and do something about the gap between between the big five leagues and, and everybody else. Yeah, that, in, in fact, just because we mentioned the re, the regional thing and the Balkans Cup before, I just pulled up the uh, the list of winners, and there are actually three Turkish winners between uh, 1960 and 1994 when it, when it ceased. The last winner was, in fact, Samsunspor. Sarıya also lifted the trophy, as did Fenerbahce. So there you so go. There you that, go. That could be uh, that could be a really interesting proposal, I think, going forward. Um, actually, I did have one question. Kind of a bolt on to uh, to the to the widening gap and the widening inequality amongst uh, federations that you talked about before. Um, it's about transfer fees. Uh, so transfer fees are inflating every year, every summer. We saw Neymar most recently with a price tag of two hundred and fifty million euros. Where does this go? How far can these uh, transfer league uh, transfer fees become inflated? Is there a ceiling? Do you think? And if so, what kind of uh, circumstances would 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 make a, a a ceiling on these transfer fees? So, I always refer every, I think it's every January, but it's on the website, and I, I kind of nerd out with this a little bit. UEFA issue their what they call their benchmarking report, which is sort of um, it's like a comprehensive summation of it's everything from spectators to finances to foreigners to loans to everything it's kind of like a snapshot of top flight european football and um it makes for some pretty interesting reading and a couple things emerge uh one transfer fees when you adjust for inflation um transfer fees were actually pretty stagnant from about 2001 2000 to right up until a couple years ago, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, 20, 25 million was a big fee, and, and the 40, 50 millions were like, whoa, what, what's going on? Exactly. 
Um, so we've really only seen a boom in, in the last two years. Um, but equally, because of financial fair play, you know, European top flight clubs went from losing on aggregate about 1.8 billion euros a year in losses to in 2011 to last season where for the first time um, on aggregate, they made about half a billion. Um, if you look at the top five leagues, the number of clubs that are actually profitable, you know, I mean, here in England, it's crazy. It's like 17 out of 20 or something like that. But, you know, even in, in other leagues, um, you have a majority of clubs that are turning a profit. So I kind of think these transfer fees, I'm, I'm, you know, they don't bother me. I'm, I'm sort of okay with it. Um, you know, the, the individual players... You know, I, I would point to and say, well, these guys are idiots because they overpaid for them, you know. Um, but overall, but in terms of the general trends, yeah. Yeah, in terms of general trend, I mean, football is becoming an investable sport. You know, that's mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 old, the old paradigm of football about, you know, the joke about, oh, you know, what's the best way to make a, you know, to, to become a millionaire through football will start out as a billionaire or like you know, the old folk <laughs> about the, you know, the, the, the benevolent club chairman who's a fan and he puts mm-hmm. money in and he just does, he loses millions, but he gains in fame and popularity as a love of the club. Yeah. All that. Take it with you, though. right? <laughs> yeah. It, it's not the case. These guys, you know, whether it's, it's Manchester United or further down the food chain, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's capital appreciation from the clubs, but there's also now there's profitability as well. So if more of this money goes in transfer fees or indeed wages and, and wages have been growing yeah. more slowly than revenue. Um, well, look at Frenkie de Jong. He's going to make 16 or 17 million euros at Barcelona. Now I, I think he's played one year of, of top level football. Um, I remember just a decade ago, maybe I think at David Trezeguet, Alessandro Del Piero were making like 5 million euros, which was massive back then. And, now this this guy's gonna make seventeen million already. That's but incredible. but if you look at if you look at the revenues, mm-hmm. you know compared to when if you're talking about Trezeguet and Del Piero, you're talking about what twelve years ago? Yeah, maybe ten fifteen years ago. Yeah, and then you look at okay, so De Jong's wages may have tripled, but you know probably I'm guessing you know Juventus's revenue since then mm-hmm. has probably you know, quadrupled or, or gone up maybe even five or six times, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have less of a, I have less of a problem with it on aggregate as long as the clubs are remaining, as long as the clubs are remaining uh, uh, profitable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know if anyone has any follow-up questions or that on that, but if not, that will do it for us, except for Burak's very special question that he has for you. Uzer or, or Burak, do you guys have any follow-ups for Mr. Makoti? No follow-ups from me, no. Okay, then. Well, Burak, I think you have a question for Mr. Makoti, then. Uh, yes, um, uh, uh, Gabriele. Uh, I know that you often talk about having watched ECW in its prime uh, at Viking Hall, the the ECW arena in Philadelphia in its heyday. And um, as you alluded to, you are a fan of, of wrestling and like the, the older generation of of stuff and, and product. 
So my question to you is, if we go back to primetime ECW era, the, the Attitude Era when it was running wild, and, and WCW when we had the, the hot Monday Night Wars with the NWO angle, if you took a primetime Paul Heyman, a primetime Vince McMahon, and a primetime Eric Bischoff, who would be their football managing counterparts um, in their primes as well? So you can pick any manager you want, but who would you associate Paul Heyman with from a football managerial standpoint? And the same for Eric Bischoff and, and Vince McMahon. Just interested to get your, your take on that. Oh, you're putting me on the spot here because um, I'll try to provide some context for those who are not um, who, <laughs> for those who are not uh, wrestling fans, obviously, including me. <laughs> yeah. So, and and I do have to declare an interest because weirdly, um, while I'm a big fan of ECW and have been, um, I guess it was just kind of meant to be. But um, uh, Shane McMahon, who is Vince McMahon's son, of course, and a leading figure, um, uh, I, I went to his wedding. Um, as it happened, the uh, his wife is uh, was a friend of my wife's growing up, so oh, wow. that whole weird angle as well. Um, I, I think so. Vince McMahon would would be somebody who is ultimately, you know, the guy who ultimately pulls the strings and who ultimately is is more successful than everybody else. Um, and I, I should because I'm not passing a value judgment on these people. Let's make it clear that. They're all bad guys, right? I mean, those are their characters are all generally shifty or shady or, or bad or whatever. But I guess, um, I guess Vince would be would be somebody like uh, uh, like Pep Guardiola. Uh, not that you know he has that evil, sneaky vibe, but you know he is pretty much all conquering. His his club is pretty much uh, all conquering. Um, Bischoff would probably be, I would have him, I'd have Bischoff as, as Mourinho. Um, oh, interesting, interesting. Kind of because he sort of lost his, you know, he kind of lost his mojo and became a lot less cool and not quite as cult. And, wow, Polly is an interesting one. He he came to speak here in London, and uh, I'll never forget, just a quick anecdote, because it was the day after I got back from, you know, five and a half weeks in Brazil at the World Cup. Was that I, in your call in Bethnal Green? Sorry, Jennifer. Yeah. I was there too that night, yeah. Were you? Yeah. And that, that, <laughs> that, that English uh, wrestler was there too. That He's some young up-and-coming guy. Um... But yeah, um, so I went there, I had my picture taken, so I'm a total fan. So, I don't know, he's got a bit of the Bielsa because of the cult following, although obviously yeah. his behavior is antithetical to the <laughs> Bielsa. He is kind of like the rogue who screws you over and lets you down and gets all shifty, but you know, you still have a soft spot for him. I mean, I, I listened to um, the Tommy Dreamer podcast, and... He has a hundred and one reasons to to hate Paul Heyman, you know. After what Paul put him and, and the organization through, but but you can tell he still has a soft spot for him. Uh, you know, one of his uh, shows, I think he 
you know, he, he likened it to kind of an abusive relationship where you can't get out of. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I don't, I, I don't quite know what, who, what manager, I don't think, I don't think anybody can, can match Paul Heyman. I, I think he's just in a class of his own. I think Bielsa was pretty good, though. Uh, I think that's a good likening. I was thinking more uh, Simeone because he was kind of like that underdog in, in the late 90s, but he managed to, uh, I think... Yeah, Simeone yeah. fits, kind of by hook or by crook, you know, we'll yeah. find a way through. And, yeah. And he but, does uh, have a cult-like but, following, yeah, totally. But Bielsa is, is great, too, I think, more character-wise, you know, a, br- br- a genius, but ultimately flawed. But same could be said about... Uh, Vince McMahon, I guess, but uh, <laughs> anyway. I would have put, have put Sir, Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson as Vince. Um, mm. I had that pick just because of the the timeline and the, Sir and the Alex success. Sir Alex went to call it quits, though. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you do have a, a very good point there, Khan. Uh, definitely, uh, Arsene Wenger. <laughs> <laughs> now today's Vince McMahon is definitely Arsene Wenger, like going on for far too long. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's how I understand it. <laughs> well, no, no, not knocking at Semengar, of course. Obviously, great, great manager and uh, and all that. But uh, he just went a little bit too long uh, at Arsenal, at least. That's a um, fantastic stuffer, Gabriella. Thank you for your your insights and thoughts on that. I'll definitely have to to pick your brains about the Paul Heyman stuff a little bit uh, later <laughs> on uh, at some point. And um, the the wrestler he brought on stage was a Will Ospreay, who's now. Um, conquering new japan pro wrestling yeah Yeah, so he's done very well for himself since he got brought up on stage at uh, the york called in bethnal green yeah it was uh i'm glad i was i was part of history then yeah (laughs) well gabriel i want to thank you so much for just being so kind with your time and and giving us you know a great interview um our first interview actually on the football Turka podcast so what a way to start off there's only you know there's nowhere to go but down from here but uh, <laughs> we set the bar too high Jens. but but thank you so <laughs> much it, it's been an absolute pleasure pleasure talking to you and and we're going to let you go now of course because you've you've given us so much of your time already but um please tell people of course where they can find you on twitter where they can follow you i'm sure they'll already be following you uh but still Feel free to uh, plug uh, your stuff. Yeah, sure. Thanks. It's um, uh, my Twitter handle, just my last name, uh, Marcotti, M-A-R-C-O-T-T-I. And um, you can find me on uh, on ESPN. And uh, uh, some of you may know this. I, I did a podcast for the for the Times for 13 years. I, I had to go and leave that, but watch this space because um, I hope to be starting one up uh, um at ESPN uh, from next season so yeah I'll, I'll, I'll have updates and uh, let you guys know excellent and make sure to check out Gabriel's books on Amazon um, very 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 well written and a great read for anyone interested in, in football yeah indeed and please keep in mind that the Kindle version the Kindle version of Hail Claudio is uh, on sale right now for £3.99 so you can definitely go and give that a read it's a bargain for £3.99 I'm still making that mistake £3.99 so uh, once again guys thank you for joining and, and your questions of course that you prepared for Mr. Makoti Gabriele thank you very much again and uh, we'll hope to have you on maybe in the future and uh, for the listeners thank you for listening and we'll see you again next week sounds good take care